0: Hi, I'm Craig Jones, and you're listening to Inside Position. Sacrifices—you got to make sacrifices with your team.
1: To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's episode is the second part of a conversation with everyone's favorite grappler and owner, of one of the best submission rates in the game, Craig Jones. Craig gives us some great insight into how he structures his training, how he overcame adversity at ADCC to deliver an epic performance, and we also discuss his leg lock game and some of the future trends of the sport. I hope you all enjoy it and get some great ideas to implement in your own training. So here we go with part two with Craig Jones. For the leg lock specifically, what were some of your early influences for that? Because you got into it kind of at the beginning, really, when they were just becoming popular.
0: Yeah, I mean, I saw Dean Lister at ADCC, saw Pajaras at ADCC. Both those guys didn't appeal to me too much because I just saw that they looked like absolute monsters. And I was like, uh, I wasn't quite sure if those techniques would work for everyone. But uh, I guess, I remember the first thing me and Lachlan were working on was Huffer Mendez's bear trap, where he would do sort of like the uh, cross Archy saddle entry, but below the knee or on the knee, right? So we were we were studying that heavily, but mainly to use it as a sweep. And then I still remember watching Eddie Cummings submit uh, Enrico Coco, like elevated Coco crossed his legs. He went to the uh, cross Ashi. And that's when I went to the gym the next day and I was like, i got to figure this out. This looks super beneficial. And I remember showing Giles and Giles was trying to test it out to see how we get out and stuff. And that's where we sort of, we took it from there and just really were trying to copy the DDS.
1: And then recently I know you've kind of added in now connecting the 50-50 and the saddle and kind of different leg positions that are in between. Was it Lachlan that kind of first started having the ideas with that or you just kind of came up with it?
0: I'm trying to think. The first time I saw the transition with both was Ryan Hall's old 50-50 DVD where he was saying about he would put the, the his leg across the far hip to prevent them elevating and spinning. So that was the first time I saw those positions. And then uh, rather than enter the leg lock uh, position and then change the, the foot position to control them um, I would sort of start playing with it from 50-50 where the battle for inside knee and then obviously depending on where your feet end up so that's sort of sort of where, the, where I first saw that stuff. I'm trying to think when I was still training it Lachlan was working on K guard entries when I was still training at Absolute but um, he was really trying to copy Paolo Miao's uh, Gi and Nogi game sort of and I think at, at the time, Lockheed was just thinking about it from a sweeping perspective, like getting guys in 50-50 and using it to sweep. And then he obviously, it evolved into that backside position. I was still at absolute when Ryan Hall hit the uh, the roll on BJ Penn to the backside position. So I sort of think what Lachlan did was sort of just combine those those two moves, basically. But in terms of, uh, for, for the 2017 EBI, I remember like uh, my philosophy at that time was, to, to expose the heel and then make up how I control the hips. What versus back then, I remember DDS guys would be very linear, get to the position, get the second leg, expose the heel. But nowadays we're sort of trying, to, cause both positions have uh, sort of a, their inherent weakness. You know what I mean? So like, I feel like cross can be beaten the way Vinnie Margalash would beat it by by getting height. There's nothing to, there's nothing from cross Ashi to force a bend in the leg. is great to bend a leg, but it is um, weak in that you can be countered quite easily if you don't take that sort of 80-20 position. So like the ultimate is what uh, Gordon just hit on Mateus Denise, which is basically that crisscross position. Lachlan would always preach, he would call it the outside Senkaku. But um, for me right now, the strongest variation is that the one – Gordon hit on Denise. So rather than the foot going across the far hip, it comes back inside. I feel that might be harder to get.
1: So it's controlling their free leg as well. Like your free your free leg is controlling their free leg.
0: Yeah, so we've got a frame, uh, keeps distance, uh, controls the free leg. And uh, because we still have that 50-50 hook, they can't get high and straighten their leg because that 50-50 hook prevents the leg straightening.
1: That's very interesting. And actually the first time that I was kind of exposed to that idea I think it was maybe one of your DVDs I saw a bit of it as a part of a breaking mechanic to push away and I was thinking that was interesting and then Lachlan was actually in Dublin when I was teaching there and he was teaching a seminar but I was away so I couldn't go and I asked one of the guys that was going I said ask Lachlan when your hand when you're getting the heel in 50/50 and someone grabs your hands how do you kind of create the distance and push them away and do it? And he showed that little transition to the, the outside Senkaku, what he calls it, but it didn't have a name. So I started doing it and I was calling it the cross saddle. And then I was a thinking, saddle. okay, maybe I can just try and get to this cross saddle from other places. And I started putting time into it and I was even like, oh, this would be cool. Now I'll do loads of this coming up to ADCC and I'll surprise everyone with it. And then I kind of didn't really put as much time into it as I thought. And then I saw at ADCC, Lachlan absolutely murked everyone with it. And I was like, damn. <laughs> so now I st- now I call it the outside Senkaku in- instead of the cross saddle. <laughs> uh,
0: he had, a, I-, I was always thinking like his his absolute run was like, uh, he had the perfect opponents, really. Yeah. He, uh, in terms of guys, like say, I always look at Muhammad Ali and Patrick Gaudio and say the backside entries. The best way to counter the backside is to backstep. But then obviously now you're in 50-50 ready to mutually exchange. And I, I remember thinking like backside position works great on guys that under no circumstances would be ever willing to concede to a neutral position like that. And Muhammad Ali and Patrick Gaudio, they're on top. They refuse to go back, uh, fall back to 50-50. So they basically force themselves to get heel hooked. And then with Kynan, Kynan's style of no-gi passing is very IBJF-gi style. Like He's almost looking for uh, straight legs, bent at the hips, Toriando style, and if you enter the legs, he'll go uh, back-take style, Birambolo back-take style. So K-guard works so good on that because he's not pressuring. Like you saw Lucas Lepre would pressure Lockie's De La Riva and that kills the K-guard. Kainan keeps his legs straight, inviting uh, the, the K-guard entry, and because... Uh, he's only looking for a counter-back take. It's, pre- it's pretty damn hard to counter-back take the backside entry. So I'm, it's just the perfect opponents for those techniques. But that's not to say it couldn't have got other guys. It was just like the technique that he developed, basically combining Ryan Hall and Pula Meow's game, he faced three opponents that like, obviously I think the the guy most adaptable to defending the position would have been Kynan but Kainan was the first to get hit. And I don't think Gaudio and Muhammad Ali are as good at changing their game on the fly. They were probably
1: worried as well after seeing Kainan get caught with it. Sometimes the small people can be awkward when they're too small almost. Obviously everyone is a midget compared to someone like Muhammad Ali, but someone who's small, but also quite strong. It's kind of easy to like wriggle around underneath them and tangle up the legs.
0: And Lucky's very, it's surprising. It's super surprising. He's super flexible and super strong so like he actually has very good genetics to go into the absolute you know what i mean i feel like not every like a jt torres i don't think although he's very very good would do as well like lucky style as a smaller guy translates very well to those opponents but can
1: kind of absorb the pressure more yeah
0: exactly i think ross nichols could have done very well in the absolute too because he's a, a guy that's quite hard to to pressure pass
1: after a lot of the adcc performance and the super fights and stuff you've been still doing a lot of seminars do you have like set routines when you teach or are you teaching new stuff you're doing or is it more things that are kind of competition proven and stuff
0: unfortunately i don't really get the luxury of teaching what i would prefer to teach i feel like as they're like even to this day they're still like oh it's craig jones seminar we want heel hooks we want heel hooks you know what i mean so I usually just mess with them a bit. I'll be like, oh, we're doing rubber guard or we're doing self-defense today <laughs> <laughs> just to watch the the disappointment.
1: <laughs> Kizukatami.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They all just really want uh, heel hooks because I guess it still has that reputation. Like it's still a great way to beat people that are better than you.
1: And I guess you're kind of so well known now and especially for that game. They probably want to see what all the fuss is about as well.
0: What, what i try to do now is like uh, i try to do these tours like i got a two-week tour coming up i feel like it's the most efficient use of my time like i'll do 10 seminars in 14 days and just road trip it and to me that's like i it's going to be a rough two weeks but like what's worse than that is flying every weekend to do a, a new seminar going through airports and stuff like that
1: what happens when they want to take you out for pints after the seminar though
0: Yeah, that's the difficult thing. Actually, and you know, it was a lot worse in Europe. Uh, I would travel through Europe and like they would just wouldn't understand that like I had a a train or a flight to catch the next morning. Like people would just be like, no, you're coming to dinner. You know what I mean? (laughs) Much, much harder.
1: There's been some good nights out after seminars now, I must say, (laughs) because everyone wants to introduce you to the local culture and try this beer and let's go to this place and let's go to this place. (laughs) You must have some, because I know you've taught seminars all around the world, you must have some crazy stories, let's say, in the off-season when you've been traveling uh, around. Oh, when
0: traveling around. I guess probably the most fun place was Kazakhstan, of all places. Like, uh, just the most out there, sort of different culture, uh, just sort of fun guy. And surprisingly good at jiu-jitsu, like, because they got that wrestling base. And they're also those, that crazy Eastern European sort of feel to them, like they're just, like, they're ready to fight. Like, even at the ADCC trials I did in Kazakhstan, probably the most injuries i've ever seen guys just like refusing to tap i saw one guy get heel hooked on both legs and then completely broken on both legs and he didn't tap until he got put in an armbar i was like what the fuck it's just a trial."
1: i actually heard a funny story before that at uh some unnamed brazilians gym in brazil if you tapped to a footlock you were suspended from the competition training for two or three weeks so no one would tap but then everyone was like retired by the time they got their black belt because they just didn't tap to footlocks
0: it makes sense hey like i'm still shocked that meows can compete i don't know how they did you see the video of paulo's the doctor testing his knee flexibility recently
1: it was rough it was rough
0: Every direction it would move.
1: You've actually been pretty good as well at avoiding injuries.
0: Yes, but I tap early. You know, I'm not like, uh, I don't have that much. like, oh, no one's going to tap me. You know what I mean? Let's say you get me, I'm going to tap. You know, like, first of all, I want to keep training and competing. But second, like, I just want to be healthy when I get older.
1: That's the thing I've seen with the Meows, especially. Like, I competed against Paolo the first time at the World Pro in the Gi. And backstage, he was walking around and... He looked like he was looking for a zimmer frame like he was honestly hobbling around and then as soon as he stepped on the mat i don't the mats must be magical or something he transformed into an absolute he was so slick his movement was perfect and then as soon as the match is over he's back to hobbling off the mat
0: it's yeah it's crazy man i don't know how they do it honestly i don't like they must live in constant pain
1: well you can get the good pain medicine in brazil as well just go to the chemist and there's no that's true (laughs) there's no fuss about it (laughs) you have a very competitive room is there ever a worry about people getting injured or going too hard, or does everyone kind of have a little bit of, I suppose, respect for each other in that sense?
0: Everyone trains pretty safe. So obviously, injuries occur because some things are unavoidable. Like uh, <clears throat> Nikki's, Nikki Ryan's leg got injured. He had to pull out against uh, Roberto, and that was because he he went to the outside heel hook on Nikki Rod. Nikki Rod cleared the knee line, and uh, Nikki tried to clear it. Uh, tried to set up a calf slicer hook to take the back, and uh, but Nikki Rod. I don't think he fully understood the position, so he just rolled again and it took Nikki's foot into the sky and just Nikki's leg was huge, but he's healed he's healed pretty quickly. Like uh, surprisingly, I he went to get an MRI here and just be in Puerto Rico. Like I remember the doctor called him back and they're like, Actually we took the photo too far away. We can't see if we can't see the results, you're gonna have to do it again. Like uh, that's like just everything here in Puerto Rico. <laughs> But no one finishes submissions here, right? So like there's a rule that you never extend an armbar. So we practice, you get a guy to extension, you hold it for three seconds, that's a submission. So that gives your uh, training partner opportunity, to hitchhiker opportunity to sit up. And then that way our control must get better and then get a chance to work their escapes. So guys here have really good armbar escapes, like really good hitchhiker.
1: That's very interesting actually, you do it for the armbars as well. Cause I've been doing that with the heel hooks for the beginners. Cause I just don't want to be looking at someone trying to like eat in a heel hook. I'm just like, look, if you make the grip and you can pin them for three seconds, then you win. But it's more yeah, out of yeah. me just not wanting to have to call the ambulance for anyone more than anything. But it actually turns into people being good then at escaping.
0: Yeah, I think it's great for armbars. Great. Because it builds the reaction. Because now like say if I switch to an armbar from back control and I don't hook the leg, the guy's already hitchhiker. So it just it uh, any movement based escape, we practice controlling movement before we practice the break.
1: And when I think of you guys and your team one of the big things that kind of stands out is the finishing mechanics like the breaking mechanics for joint locks and the finishing of chokes that it's just once it's on it's very hard to get out how do you put such a good focus on that
0: oh we we will just literally like some days we'll come in and we'll spend a day on really late stage escapes for everything and then uh obviously the counter to that is then in the training room guys will be working how to prevent those late stage escapes But I feel like Danaher, he trains the areas other people can sort of forego. They sort of get a bit lazy on. And I think it also is beneficial that he's the coach and he doesn't participate because it's easy as a coach to make guys train the areas people don't want to train. But you're less likely to do it if you're the coach and you're training with them because you're going to want to do something that's a bit more fun, you know. So everything that people said, think about John that would be bad for the team, sort of works in reverse, you know what I mean? That's not to say everyone that doesn't compete or train could be good coaches, but under certain circumstances almost makes him a better coach.
1: And he has so much focus on studying and different things. I think when they think of someone who has never competed, it's also someone who isn't that interested in keeping up with the game. But obviously, John is the opposite. He's kind of ahead of the game with some of that stuff, in
0: fairness. John goes back in time to find these moves. John will come into class one day and he'll be like, Craig, Nicky, we're going to test something out. He's like, I saw this in the 1988 fucking free, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling Olympic final or something. And he'll be like, let's test out and see if we can make this work for jiu-jitsu. So he almost innovates by going back in time rather than creating these moves for the future.
1: When you're adding in the wrestling, do you do specifics from wrestling situations that kind of mix with jujitsu situations, or do you just—is there anything different that you do to add in the wrestling to the game?
0: We we just focus on stealing wrestling moves that will work under jujitsu circumstances, but we also spend a heavy amount of time focusing on what we how we can use jujitsu to beat wrestling. Because if we look at every ADCC competitor, uh, everyone does the same thing. They go, "I do jujitsu." Oh, ADCC has wrestling in it. I'm going to go learn how to freestyle wrestle from a freestyle wrestler. So we know they're going to give us the same looks as your regular freestyle wrestler. So we we take it a different step. Rather than trying to beat wrestlers at wrestling, we try to beat them with jujitsu. And uh, like obviously, like from a front headlock position, wrestlers always come up to the hands because they don't have to worry about protecting the neck as much. You know what I mean? So we sort of we would use a, a guillotine to hit a go-behind rather than use a wrestling move to hit a, hit a go-behind on someone. Because obviously, if you're gonna defend the guillotine, elbows on the floor, hand fighting, not blocking the underhook. So John will emphasize that and we'll do, we call it scrimmage wrestling, which is like first point. So, but <clears throat> say Jeff a scramble ends when you get on top. see you need to pin the guy. So if you only train getting on top, you don't train those gray areas in between. So we heavily practice how to st- how to use stand-ups to escape positions. Obviously, you've got grambys, switches, Like we, we really focus on all that. So even if we lose the initial wrestling exchange where they double leg us, they won't pin us.
1: That's good to kind of mix it in and make it part of the full game. And going back to the braking mechanics as well, actually, the match with Vinny was probably the best evidence of how that was, but that was a rough watch to be honest anyone who hasn't seen it at submission underground competing against Vinny, what were you talking about during the match because y- your reaction was very funny actually you were like jesus christ like
0: uh, i'm trying to think of the exchange the first one uh because his foot his other foot hit the mat at the same time i heard a noise and i felt what i thought was a break but i didn't know how bad it was and he uh, i let it go because he tried to counter leg lock like me and then afterwards I, I like was just like oh respect like uh because I was like, oh, wow. I mean, maybe he is unbreakable. Yeah. Which is sort of what I thought going in. I thought maybe this guy just can't be broken. But then I was like, no, no, everyone can be broken. And then a, a little bit after that, he goes, oh, I think you broke my leg. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, do you want to continue? Like, what are you doing? He's like, no, we'll go on. And then he was like, I think you broke my leg. And I was like, maybe I broke his leg. And then I got the leg again. And when I applied the rotation, there was no resistance like it was just completely loose and then afterwards i was like bro like i mean i didn't know if he knew how bad it was i'm like this is pretty bad i don't know why he has a good poker face though
1: was there something in your mind where you crossed the line of like because attacking the broken leg again looking at it it, w- it was so disgusting it nearly looked funny because it didn't look real it looked like kind of when you bend like a rubber duck's leg or something and it's just like it's just too bendy you know
0: yeah, I mean, like I'm, I still can get over it because I'm worried that he somehow can't, like I say, Gordon, I busted up Gordon's arm and he came back and beat, beat me. So yeah, now I'm like, yeah. uh, I feel not, I feel nothing. Like if if, if uh, my life's on the line, basically, you know, like I would have looked like an idiot if I had broken his leg and then he grabbed my leg and I tapped. You know, I <laughs> I wasn't prepared to go to let it break as well. But we did put a lot of thought into that match because Gary got pops on him, Gordon got pops. And they were just like, we can pop him, we just can't break him. And then we came up with the theory, this is what we came up with, the uh, the saddle can be beaten with height because the leg configuration doesn't bend the leg. So that's, the emphasis was, uh, how can we get his hips as close to the ground before we break it?
1: It's funny how like, I was talking to my friends about this the other day, combat sports especially, and now Jiu Jitsu is one of the more playful combat sports in comparison to boxing or something like that, but still combat sport nonetheless. It's funny the kind of characters that you get doing it and even the people who are very sound, very nice or normal. You still have to have something in you where you're okay (laughs) with doing that to someone, you know. So I wonder what it is that draws people to it. Like it is fighting at the end of the day.
0: Well, if someone doesn't tap, I almost take it as a disrespect because there's only two things they're thinking. Either I don't know how to do it, so I don't have faith in my technique or they don't think I'm capable of doing it. So in that sense, I consider someone not tapping almost disrespectful because it shows a lack of respect for you.
1: That's a good way to rationalize it as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I think.
1: The mental side of competition as well. Does it ever get hard being in a room with so many good people? You must leave training some days demoralized. Does that ever put you off or does it just build you up?
0: Um, it just keeps things in check, I think. You know what I mean? I, don't, I definitely don't think it's the best to be the best guy in the room. But also the training's rough here, but it's not... Crazy, like I've trained at teams before where like they'll do ten minute rounds and every minute is a fight to the death. You know what I mean? But there's a lot of like, you know how like uh, they say in MMA, like Robbie uh, Robbie Lawler stops sparring before fights. He just he just spars light, no hard sparring. I sort of that's sort of what Gordon's like to train with. Like although when he gets a good position, he'll hold you there forever. He's not he's not he never rolls crazy hard. He's just practicing technique all the time. So in that sense, although training can be rough, it's rough in sort of a different way to, uh, yeah. to other teams.
1: I found as well, cause I've gone through the stages of doing 10, 10 minute rounds for training and all those different things. And I found it to be almost, it, it like affected my style. Like it made me have a less aggressive style because I know if it's in round three and I'm trying to submit someone and I'm putting everything into getting a few submissions come round six or seven, I'm going to be wrecked and I'm. So that, that's kind of in the back of your mind then. And I felt like it was making me less aggressive in the training when I was always subconsciously conserving energy maybe for the later rounds. Because you're someone s- similar who has a very like submission-oriented style. Did that ever affect you in the past?
0: Like, even, I mean, even in the way we train, like sometimes I'll get to a point where I'll take a guy's back and I'll be like, if I submit this guy, we have to go again. You know what I mean? But, but that's especially true when we do, because we'll do six, seven rounds and then we'll do the scrimmage wrestling round scrimmage is we're meant to do a five minute round but actually it's over 10 and i have to pin a guy so i'll i have to come to these sort of inner battles where i've got a guy nearly pinned but in my head i'm like holy shit if i pin pinned this guy now we're wrestling again i'm exhausted so that's something i have to think about every day i'm like uh, do i pin this guy or do i ride this ride this a bit longer gordon will sort yeah. of demoralize you he'll make you pin yourself he'll put you in a spot where you decide that the round's over you know what i mean
1: I guess it gives you good mental toughness from dealing with all that and training then going into competition
0: yeah definitely like you can stay in a bad position like i can stay in a bad position on gordon and be mentally fine but it's when i try to get out that's the demoralizing sort of panic inducing part of the battle that's how he sort of breaks you down
1: looking at adcc 2009 2009- uh 2019 then that was probably one of your more at least from the outside looking in mentally tough performances because I saw you there and you looked sick, like you looked like you had the flu. I know you had the pink eye thing and how was that experience? I know you didn't get the job fully done, but I think it's funny. A lot of people think you actually won that.
0: (laughs) I'll take it. I'll take it.
1: I constantly forget that Mateus actually won the division. How was it competing being sick like that?
0: Yeah, it was pretty bad because I had to what was bad for the eye was uh, dry, sort of hot temperatures and I had to cut weight every day. So I'd wake up and go to the sauna and then that would make my eye worse. And then we were actually trying to keep it a secret from the medic that it was pink eye. We were pretending that I got poked in the eye because obviously Josh Inger and Keenan were trying to get us eliminated from the event. Um, I mean, actually, it's funny. Josh Inger and Keenan tried to get us eliminated, but even Gal came up to me. He's like, hey, it's ADCC. He's like, I'll go in with anything. You know what I mean? So, But what happened was I was taking these corticosteroid drops from my eye. And another funny thing about that is Gordon, I remember Gordon saying to me, he's like, ADCC, where even your eyes are on steroids. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard a truer word in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm putting corticosteroids in my eye, but then the medic came up to me and he's like, at the end of day one, he's like, oh, I've got these corticosteroids, I'm gonna put them in your eye. And he's like, we'll give you a huge dose. Trust me, this will help. But I had already put it in there, but I couldn't say no to him because he had no. So he just starts pouring it into my eye and because corticosteroids, even if you put them in your eye, they go into your system. So yeah. I remember he gave it to me and it wired me. Like I didn't sleep for fucking 30 minutes uh, between day one and two. I remember I felt super nauseous, uh, like almost like I was on drugs, like I, I was wired. I, I had to come home and I couldn't really eat. So I ate a little bit of pasta because I had to cut weight for the next day. I remember laying down with my eyes open and then my alarm going off at 5am to go cut weight again. And I just didn't sleep at all. I don't think it affected my performance too much. Like I don't think I got tired of the Denise match. Denise was just anti sort of, anti-jiu-jitsu. Like I did good with John Blank match. Yeah, the the tricky thing with the whole Denise sort of, me and Denise probably the opposite styles. And this sounds silly for the person that didn't win to say, but to me there are things more important than winning. Like what I value most about my career is that I think 48 matches at Black Belt, I've submitted 40 of of my 48 wins, 40 submissions. To me, it's almost how you win is more important than what you win these days. So like I value that. more. Again, easy to say when you didn't win, but I feel like Denise is a style of opponent that all he cares about is winning by any means necessary, but I'm trying to get more of a a pure victory. So me at ACC getting three submissions and then one loss, is still, I'm still very proud of that as opposed to if I'd gone out there and won four decisions.
1: I think that's why people think of you as winning it nearly because it was a good performance. I always think as well that it doesn't really feel like a win unless you get a submission as well. Exactly. Because that's what you go there trying to do. It just doesn't really feel like a win. And I think that plays out well then in training. When you're training to submit people instead of just to win by advantage or points.
0: That should be the goal. Set set the goal as high as possible. You know what I mean? That's the best way to train, I think. Don't train to win by points. Like... Again, in the modern jiu-jitsu game as well, like, uh, what do people want to do? Like, obviously, you want to make a career out of this. You want to have fans, have seminars. Uh, you want to sell DVDs. I mean, really, you could be you could win ADCC three times, but if you asked anyone, oh, who's your favorite grappler, and they ne- they never say you, it's like, uh, what are you really doing this sport for? Would that be something
1: on your mind? Like, you have a lot of the kind of signature things, like, fuck Craig Jones, or the leopard print, or something like that. Where did those things come from? They just kind of come naturally, or...? how did it come about
0: just anything i I find the sport takes itself very very serious you know what i mean there's no one no one laughs at themselves so that's what i try to bring to the table like i'll sometimes roast other people but no one gets too mad because i get away with it because they're like oh this guy roasts himself a lot of the time too you know like gordon will never laugh at himself he spends a lot of time laughing and attacking others and that obviously pisses a lot of people off but whereas I try to do it the other way, I try to lightly poke fun at other people and stuff, but still sort of laugh at myself. Because I always think to myself, like, no matter how much people love this sport, we're just fucking wrestling other dudes. Like, we're not rocket scientists. We're not curing diseases, you know? Like, how serious can you take it? I
1: was wondering, have you ever competed before being sick like that or
0: hungover or anything when you were coming up through the days? I was busy celebrating after ADCC 2017. And I remember I had already booked a super fight in Australia and I came into that hungover. After ADCC 2017, I did a few seminars, hungover, which is probably not the most uh, professional. Actually, after uh, for EBI 2017, I almost pulled out. I, I was super sick. I made it to America, and I don't know what was wrong with it, but I just couldn't. Like, I trained at Homolo's, got the shit kicked out of me, and I remember thinking, oh, maybe it's just jet lag. But then I woke up the next day. I couldn't even get out of bed. I was like, what's wrong with me? Just, like, complete exhaustion. And I was messaging uh, the girl that works for Eddie Bravo. I'd be like, I'm just letting you know. I might not be able to do the event so have a backup in mind but then what made me do the event is I remember thinking to myself oh don't be a pussy you were the most expensive flight for EBI I'm like you owe it to these guys to compete and I went out there and still had a good performance so I don't know sometimes what you think is going to affect you doesn't it's strange like that
1: do you ever get worried because obviously you're getting older now you must be are you close to the master's division now
0: Oh, I could could do masters right now. I'm 30 in July, so I could technically do masters. (laughs)
1: Man, the masters are going to get messed up. (laughs) Do you ever worry about the short window, I suppose, that athletes have and you're ever thinking like, oh, I need to squeeze it in, especially ADCC being every two years. You're like, I only have two or three left kind of thing.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not too fussed because I do have high goals for moving back to Australia, opening a team and helping sort of the next generation. So. I don't think I'll adjust too poorly to the non sort of competition, not in the limelight sort of position. Um, I look at my, I ask myself the question, like I look at Cyborg, Cyborg's having a great run right now, but he's almost 40. And I always think to myself, I'm like, what the fuck's keeping this guy in? You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't understand what keeps you in that long, especially with how brutal this shit is. The day. I'll stop competing is the day like you see guys get older and what happens is their submission rate goes down. They can go out and win. And I, I mean, I would say a good example of this would be Wagner and Cyborg. They are winning and they're doing great at the highest level, but it's almost an anti-jujitsu game. That's completely up to, to you how you wanna win, right? But what I do this for is to go out and submit my opponent. So if, I'm, if I start facing younger guys and my whole game is to shut them down and then have to score a couple points, I think that'll be the time I step away because I'll be thinking to myself, I'm like, these guys are really the star of the show here. Like I'm just, I'm preventing jiu-jitsu from happening rather than initiating the attacks. And even in a sense of if I shut them down, I gas them out and then submit them. Like I want to I wanna be submitting guys on a te- technique versus technique basis. That's what, that's what keeps it interesting to me. So I think as I start to get older, the second that starts happening, the second i'm worried about this young guy rather than them worried about me is when i'll be like all right time to take a coaching position
1: and have you thought much about going back and opening a gym then like what's some of the reasons or different thoughts you have about opening a gym and helping people in australia and growing jiu over there
0: yeah i think just to get just to give back like i always think i've been very very lucky especially with my circumstances how i came up with no jiu-jitsu basically just like there was nothing uh in terms of high level guys around so i just want to give back not just with the tech jiu but also just to help these guys out like how to market themselves like how to make connections with these big shows like uh just get try to help them with the right attitude to to turn it into a career because again like the amount of people making money in this sport is shockingly low you know what I mean yeah. the biggest help has been BJJ Fanatics I think like they probably they pay a bigger wage to jujitsu than than really anything else out there like so I really want to try to Hopefully that stays, maintains forever. Obviously, fanatics sells like crazy. I hope people stay this interested in these little niche things. But yeah, I don't know, That's, in that sense, I just wanna give back, help out, uh, help these guys turn it into a proper career.
1: Before doing Jiu Jitsu as well, I forgot to ask you earlier, was there any other sports you were doing coming up? I know the Aussies are big into sports and they have the Aussie rules and all that. And-
0: I played a little bit of Aussie rules, a little bit of basketball. Uh, I did some surf life-saving, and that's about it but nothing too absorbing you know what i mean like nothing that just absorbed every minute of the day of my time like jiu jitsu
1: have you ever seen that it's a competition that Ireland and Australia do they kind of mix the rules oh, the of gaelic Aussie football. rules with the gaelic football have you ever seen that the international rules
0: i watched it yeah it's entertaining
1: chaos it's basically a combat sport, combat sport. like yeah. there was one year there was one year there was seven red cards in it and there was like Three or four full on brawls. Like, the only reason people used to watch it here was for the fights. It was like ice hockey style fights and stuff. Brilliant.
0: It's a good competition between the two countries, hey?
1: <laughs> Jiu Jitsu has changed so much in the last five to 10 years. Where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? Do you see it being a spectator sport, just kind of cruising along, or ha- how do you see it being?
0: I think it can get bigger and bigger. Like, I think who's number one, like, honestly, it's probably the biggest, best show we've really had so far like uh COVID forced flow grappling to produce their own events. And really they used to just be a, a broadcasting uh, thing for other shows and really, they're really stepping it up. Like, I think if there's a show that'll take it mainstream, like, I don't know if you saw the preview to Gordon Wagner's like the production's crazy. And that's what I think Meta Morris was the most viewed jujitsu event, Eddie versus Hoyler. But those preview shows were huge, a huge factor to that. So the better the preview shows, like I could watch a, I like MMA, I could watch a fight if I don't know the two people. I don't care too much. But it, like I could watch any sport if I know what's involved, what's at stake. So the better the preview shows get, which is what Flo's doing, the bigger the sport will get. And the more people create characters, like I'm trying to be as entertaining as possible, you know what I mean, to draw people in. Like I try to do it in a more positive way per se than Gordon. Gordon's gone more the uh Conor McGregor way. Like uh, as long as we get more interesting characters
1: it seems like sometimes as well the thing that holds back the characters is the fear of losing because it's kind of a fight you're so worried about losing because it's very personal and then you don't want to put too much out there in case it kind of bites you in the ass nearly
0: but this is the trick right uh, henry cejudo told me this henry cejudo started talking shit first and foremost to make to make money in the sport but he said the day he started talking shit was the day he took his training to another level because now God damn! I got something to back up. Gordon's the same. Gordon talks shit to put pressure on himself to make him show up because training's unpleasant. And like when I try to do this funny shit, I'm like, I know it could bite me, bite me in the ass. But again, if you lose, it's how you lose. Ronda Rousey lost and acted like a child, and the whole world turned on her. McGregor loses, owns up to it like a man, speaks about it, maybe makes a joke about it, and people are like, still support you. So as long as you. You paint the loss in an entertaining, self-deprecating way, I feel like the fans will still be on your side. And no loss will define your whole career, you know what I mean? Like Vinny, that break's probably the worst loss he's ever had. But when people think of Vinny, I don't think they're, they're gonna think solely of the break, they're gonna think of who Vinny is as a person in the sport.
1: Thanks for joining us, Craig, really
0: appreciate it. No worries, thanks for having me.
1: Big thanks to Craig for coming on the show. It was really impressive to hear how thoughtful and consistent him and his teammates are when they're training, and it's no surprise that they've had the success that they have over the last few years. As usual, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends, give us a positive rating and review. We'll be back next week with another great guest, one of the biggest competitors coming out of Europe. Until then, Slana agus bánacht.